This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello. Between the 16th and 18th centuries, Europe was dominated by an economic way of thinking called mercantilism. The key idea in mercantilism is that exports should be as high as possible and imports minimised. For more than 300 years, almost every ruler and political thinker was a mercantilist. Eventually, Adam Smith, in his groundbreaking work The Wealth of Nations, 1776, and other economists declared that it was a flawed concept and it became discredited. However, a mercantilist economic approach can still be found in modern times and today's politicians sometimes still use rhetoric related to mercantilism. With me to discuss mercantilism are Damaris Kaufman, Professor in Economics and Finance of the Built Environment at University College London, Craig Muldrew, Professor of Social and Economic History at the University of Cambridge and a member of Queen's College, and Helen Paul, Lecturer in Economics and Economic History at the University of Southampton. Helen, in general, what type of policies do governments implement when they pursue mercantilism? They try to restrict trade, so they do all kinds of things to increase exports and to decrease imports. And that could be setting up a regulatory body, like a board of trade. It could be something like tariffs. It could be simply banning the export of bullion. There are all sorts of things that they do to try to increase exports and decrease imports. But haven't they been doing that all their lives? What's new about this? Well, I think the focus is on trying to have a restriction on imports and not paying any attention to what they might be used for. So the luxury goods you could import, try to go without those, try to increase domestic production. It's very much an idea of trade being a zero-sum game. And it becomes almost a trade war then leading to hot wars. It means that you become willing to back up your trading policies with military force and naval force. I'm glad you brought up zero-sum so early so we can get it out of the way. Could you tell the listeners what it means? Well, it's a bit of jargon from game theory. It basically means that if I win, you have to lose, and if you win, I have to lose. There's no kind of gains from cooperation or gains from trade, and therefore it's a very, shall we say, cynical worldview. So, so if I win £100, you lose it, but there's no difference to the economy? Um, if we're in the same country, then yes. But if we're talking about different countries that are competing against each other, they're using trade and warfare together to try to be dominant. So there's not this sense of cooperation between countries. You're, you're at war with each other in some way. It would be worth restricting your own economic activities if you can somehow restrict someone else's economic activities. So you deny yourself goods that might be useful to you in order to stop somebody else from selling to you. Uh, it becomes a way that um, incorrectly ignores the gains from trade. Mercantilism is linked to another idea, bullionism. Would you explain what bullionism is and how it differs from mercantilism? Well, bullionism is just that the wealth of the country is its gold and silver reserves. And that's a very simplistic view of 
money, of capital, of wealth. It's just a great heap of gold and silver. Why is it simplistic? Because in reality, people are trading with things like bills of exchange and all sorts of other types of monies, including book money. It's not very convenient to take gold coins around the place by ship. And also, there are impacts of how, if you bring in a lot of gold, say, into a country, you might have inflationary pressures and all these kinds of issues. So just building up a great stockpile of gold and silver, that is an idea that really has a much older history. And it's often connected to things like royal power and the wish to pay for military power to pay your soldiers with gold coins. But we know that we don't go around using gold coins. So it's quite an unsophisticated system. But it, it obtained for quite a while, didn't it? And the, the, the splendor of uh, the Spanish in their Amada days, or pre-Amada days, was a great deal down to bullionism. Well, they certainly thought that they were doing well by importing a lot of silver from Potosí, for example. But they also then had a problem that it damaged their home economy in many ways that they weren't necessarily all that aware of. Because if you affects how useful, how easy it is for you to export your own goods. Uh, Marius, will you tell us something about whether and why mercantilism came into being? Certainly. I think that in a, in a formal sense, mercantilism came into being when Adam Smith undertook to critique it, because Adam Smith was collecting a body of writings with some underlying ideas that he wished to critique in The Wealth of Nations in order to disprove. Um, but what he was doing is looking at a, a body of economic writings from the late 16th, really, through the 17th and into the early 18th century. And those economic writings in the first instance, were primarily by those who were advising the crown on trade policy. Um, many of them were actually um, uh, members of prominent trading companies, directors of the East India Company, or for that matter, their adversaries who were critiquing the activities of the East India Company. And what these individuals were arguing is that policies that would be beneficial to the East India Company would also be beneficial to the king and to the country as a whole. So it was very much special pleading. But Adam Smith saw in it, uh, he understood that there were some underlying economic ideas that tended to connect this body of material, and he tried to, to impose a degree of coherence on it in order to refute it. So in some sense, mercantilism came into being with Adam Smith's critique, but that body of economic writings was very indeed influential for 200 years before Adam Smith. Yeah. Why was it so influential? It's, um, it was its simplicity that was, it sounds very simple. People listening will say, okay, you save more than you spend. What's complicated about that? Well, I think what was, there were several things that were attractive about it. One is the notion that the people who were advising the king were identifying the uh, wealth of the nation with the king's treasure, the king's household, the resources at the king's disposal. They were also using writings that we regard as mercantilist to justify the expansion of um, the colonial empire, the slave economy in, in the Americas, the idea that the desirable thing to do would be to extract resources from overseas empires to, to then enable the expansion of domestic manufacturers, then to either sell back to those empires or to sell to Africa or, or elsewhere. So the idea really was that this seemed to explain the economic world around them in a way that was straightforward, legible, and, and convincing. It also gave the king some idea of how to raise revenue by taxing, by erecting protective tariffs, not only to protect domestic 
um, manufacturers, but also to generate a source of revenue for the crown. So it, it seemed to explain economic life. And I think in some ways, Adam Smith's characterization of mercantilism was a bit risible because he conflated elements of it and didn't do justice to all of the writers. But he did identify a set of coherent ideas that people did broadly accept because it seemed to explain their world. So can you just say a little more about the coherent ideas in mercantilism? Well, so we wouldn't say that it was a coherent ideology from a programmatic standpoint because people had different programs. But in terms of the assumptions that underlie it, to say coherence in more of a Gramscian sense, what we see is this notion of economic scarcity, the idea that the total resources are limited and that the Spanish get them or the French get them or the British get them and that it's a struggle amongst the, the great trading nations. It's the idea that um, you benefit if you have a positive balance of trade at the expense of your neighbor, that in order to do that, you need to ensure that there are protective tariffs that protect your industries, that people aren't able to trade goods on using their own fleets, using their own navies, um, to poach on your trading privileges, that it's pr the proper role of the state to protect domestic monopolies, to protect patents that give exclusive access to trade. So these elements of, of mercantilism were... Again, not necessarily programmatic because there were disagreements. And Thomas Moon, for example, disagreed very um, vehemently with Edward um, Misselden. Um, Josiah Child disagreed with his contemporaries as well in their attempts to attack and defend the East India Company. But in reality, there were some common assumptions underneath it in which these debates played out. But from what you said earlier in just a few sentences before the end of that, there was also plenty of potential for, for antagonism. Oh, there were loads of disagreements, of course, just as there are loads of disagreements today within mainstream economics. You know, people do have debates about all sorts of things, but the assumptions about the nature of the world were generally held. And I think what's important in terms of understanding mercantilism is coming into being through Adam Smith's critique is that Adam Smith was, in a sense, saying this new world is different from that world. That we're, you know, Smith saw himself as a modern and saw these people almost as medieval and was trying to characterize this as, as bad economic thinking that was a product of a medieval superstitious era. And he particularly was keen to critique slave, the slaving empires in that um, context as well. Yeah. Great. So Smith's program. He's very famous, obviously, for the division of labor, but he also was a great proponent of creating a financial system based on banking. So he takes the authors that DeMaris was talking about and, you know, turns them into straw men, saying what Helen said, they just want to pile up money because he wants to promote the use of paper money throughout society. And so to do that, he has to say, you know, using gold and silver coins is ridiculous. And in many ways, by the time Smith was writing, it was. But in the 1620s in England, there's a big shortage of coins. And, you know, there's not much paper credit at all. Most of the credit is oral and informal. So gold and silver does play a limited but important role in society. So what they were saying was not ridiculous in terms of the exact dates when they were writing. I'd just like to get a grip on why you thought why, why mercantilism had such a hold for so long. Well, I guess there are a number of reasons. They're attractive to rulers because they need to borrow money from merchants. They're attractive to you know, the merchants themselves that want to engage in more trade, overseas trade, um, make more profits. And there's one aspect of mercantilism which I like to stress but isn't that common in the literature, which is a concern with employment at home and the creation of industry. 
Um, so the industry happens at home, the employment happens at home, but what you really want to do is sell those industrial products abroad. Helen, you want to come in? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes, and certainly I think there's something to do with the fallacy of composition that people understand. What say, does that mean? The fallacy of composition is when you look at one part of something and you think that that's the same as the whole. So if I look at my own household and then I think, well, that's the same as the national economy, what I do should be done by the government. So if I, it's bad for me to be in lots of debt, the government should have no debt. That kind of idea is very hard to overturn because it seems to be common sense. So if you're a merchant uh, or if you're someone who works in a cottage industry or whatever, you produce a lot of stuff and you try to sell it out to your neighbours and you're very cautious about buying in a lot of imports into your house. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that the nation can operate in that way because if you start restricting imports, your neighbouring country ends up in a trade war with you and that could end up in a war. So you're not the same as the state. The, uh, can I just uh, go back to you for a moment, Craig? Um, one of the earliest statements on mercantilism policy was uh, Discourse Concerning Western Planting, mm -hmm. published in 1584. What did that say? Um, this was by a fellow called Richard Hackloyt, who was a sort of writer about colonial expansion in general, merchant as well. So the planting he's talking about there are like the Ulster plantations. This is the planting of colonies or people rather than crops or something. Um, and what he's arguing in that, which is a manuscript presented to the Privy Council for government policy, is very much a policy paper to try to counter the power of the Spanish Empire in the Atlantic, you know, just a little while before the Armada, so there's a purpose to it. And he points out that, you know, as we've been talking about, the Spanish have a a lot of silver coming in from their their mines in Peru, and they can use that to build huge armies which um, are fighting in Europe, the wars of religion. And he says, well, we can't get any of that silver. We don't have it. You know, there's no mines in, in British Isles. But what we can do instead is go to North America and plant colonies. And he suggests we can also find some natural resources to trade. He resin, tar, and things like that. It's a, it's some blue sky ideas. Um, and then once we start exploiting those natural resources, we can send more people over, create colonies, and they will then be a source of demand for home industry. So they'll send back natural products, and we'll send back finished products. And that's what happens. Not the way he described it, but tobacco became the first agricultural product produced in North America. I think Craig's very nicely indicated the extent to which this is about interstate competition. This is about competition mm -hmm. between the French, the Spanish, and the British. And as the late Istvan Hunt said, the jealousies yeah. of trade, the mercantilist writings seem to justify those jealousies of trade mm -hmm. and suggest ways in which they, they might be realized to the advantage of a particular nation. Similar things can be said about the East India Company. And, and I will let's say them. Okay. They played an important part in this argument. So could you tell us about the East India Company and what part it played and why it was allowed to play such a big part? 
Well, the, the important thing about the East India Company is that it was really founded in, in the latter years of Elizabeth's reign to contest the Portuguese control of the East Indies. And likewise, the Dutch did the same thing. Um, they established the Dutch East India Company with the idea of wresting control of the East Indies from the Portuguese who would come to dominate that part of the world and the trading prospects. And the East India Company did indeed import um, both raw materials and luxurious goods from uh, the East Indies. And there were some people who, as Craig alluded to, the, the controversies about silver saw the East India Company as responsible for the export of silver to pay for the luxurious goods. Other people saw the, the importation of raw materials, which then led to more domestic manufacturers and the export of those to be a positive aspect of the East India Company. But most of the writers that we um, regard as mercantilists are certainly at least Thomas Moon and Josiah Child, who were engaged as directors of the East India Company in defending the East India Company, and also writers like Edward uh, Misselden, who was attacking the East India Company from his point of view of a director of the Merchant Adventurers, were arguing about whether these great trading monopolies were good things or not. And the mercantilists were generally defending their trading monopolies, or they were attacking somebody else's and saying, actually, their company would be in a better position to do this than the company that was doing it. And the, the East, East India Company was, was the size of a state, that its own army, its own administration. Well, by the 18th century, it certainly yeah. was. It was yeah. it controlled about half of the world's trade and, mm. and, and controlled large swaths of, of, of British India. Mm. But of course, in the early days, when it's just getting going, it, it is nothing like that size. And there mm. were people who, who made credible attacks on it. And there were moments in the 17th century when it appeared as if it might lose its monopoly. And you know, many of these mercantilist writers were controversialists who were working on behalf of the country, company's interests in order to convince the crown to let them keep their monopoly. This seems to be directly to lead to protectionism. It, it can do, certainly. And I, I think that the, the idea that Elements of the Navigation Acts can be seen in Hakalut. Elements can also can be you seen tell in what Navigation Acts. Are? So Navigation Acts very simply just say any goods being traded into Britain or any of its colonies or out have to be carried in British ships. So it's total protection, <laughs> pure and simple. How well, well they work? there's a debate about that because it's obviously very hard to enforce, especially in the colonies. So writers on trade say it worked best when British naval ships could take a prize ship and then take all the goods from the prize ship. But in the colonies, it's quite easy to bribe port officials and things. So some historians argue that it wasn't necessary. It probably helped. It wasn't that important. Others say it's quite crucial. I mean, how you prove that one way or the other... I don't know, but in, anyway, the, certainly it did work in the sense that the British merchant fleet grew quite sizably. What's, what seems to be the case is that two of the leading English writers on mercantilism in the 17th century, Thomas Moon and Josiah Child, what points were they making? Helen? Well, they were both merchants and they were both trying to support the East India Company about which we've been hearing quite a lot. Because Support them in such a way? In which way? Basically, one of the problems with the East India Company is that it wasn't suitable for the bullionists. You have back to the bullionists. Back they to the bullionists. So, as much silver and gold as they could. So the charter of the East India Company said it could send out bullion, but on the grounds that it had to then bring back bullion eventually by basically bringing back something that could be then sold on. So a re-export, perhaps, of a manufactured good or a luxury good or something of that kind. Munn was happy with that idea, the idea of it's fine to let bullion leave temporarily because you're going to get it back later on as you have this luxury trade. Way. Because you sell East India goods 
to somebody else. So you sell goods that you've imported, you then re-export them, you send them out of your country to someone else, and that other country sends you bullion. So, so it's a triangle. So it becomes triangular, exactly. So that's all fine, and conveniently, it then backs up the East India Company, which is what Mun and indeed Child wanted because they were both associated with it. What Mun also does is he starts to develop other ideas about things like how to set prices. So if you have monopoly power, maybe you should rack up prices. But if you are trying to sell English-made goods and there's a lot of competition, then what you should do then is drop the price so you can try to flush out your competitors by undercutting them and get into a price war. So he has a lot of more sophisticated ideas generally. He's one of the better mercantilist writers, and that's why he's well-known today. Child is famous for being extremely wealthy and connected to the East India Company, um, but amongst other things, he thought that he sold people the East India Company was a good thing because it brought together merchants and the aristocratic class, and this was therefore some sort of improvement socially. Through this time, is mercantilism maintaining an intellectual coherence? And is it, is it a theory that's running things that people say, oh, we're not quite mercantilist enough, we'd better be mercantilist to jump on the bandwagon? What's happening? There's no programmatic element. There's no kind of ideological purity to mercantilism. It is something that was constructed by Smith in order for the purpose of critiquing it. But there are commonly accepted economic ideas, which, which Helen and, and, and Craig and I have alluded to, that most people would take as reflections of reality. And it's not until Smith comes along and, and critiques these. And part of it's also the, the vantage point, because as, as Helen says, there is this notion that mercantilists are thinking about the wealth of a nation as an extension of the king's treasure and the wealth of the crown and the crown domain, whereas Smith is coming from it in a different level entirely and says, is essentially saying the merchants are not acting in the interest of, of, of the kingdom because they have managed to align their interest with the king's interest. And in fact, actually, the wealth of the kingdom comes from land and um, the, the labor, the value of labor, and that this is an entirely different way of conceiving the economy. So it looks like a coherent ideology if it's being attacked by people who are producing, proposing an entirely different model of the economy, as Smith and the physiocrats were doing. But actually, the mercantilist writers themselves in the 17th and early 18th century were disagreeing with each other as much as they were agreeing. But they were disagreeing from a common set of assumptions, which then Smith attacks wholesale. Yeah. Do things get better after he's attacked it? It certainly is the case that Smith won the argument. Smith and Hume mm -hmm. won this argument. And for the better part of, of, of the following 230 <laughs> years, people have essentially mm -hmm. said that, that, that Smith and Hume were correct, that you know, there are gains to trade, that um, free trade is better than protectionism, that um, state aid and industrial policy distort the economy and, and, and create welfare losses. Much of the basis of modern economics is, is, is built on, on that critique. But it's a question of what you read into it, because I think one thing that is quite interesting is that we're talking about mercantilism in terms of protectionism, but there are people in North America um, with the Adam Smith Society and others who would see the state intervention in the economy, including protectionism, but the protection of monopolies the, you know, as, as just as much central to the point. And there were certainly plenty of advocates of state intervention in the economy in France and Germany at the time 
whose chief preoccupation is not overseas trade, but is in fact the regulation of the domestic economy. Um, Colbertism in, in France and cameralism in Germany are examples of that. Well, let's move out. We, we, we're concentrating on what's happening in this country for a time, but it's very much a European phenomenon. Can you touch on how mercantilism is working or not working in France? So in France, it's, it's principally associated with Colbert, um, who's the finance minister under Louis XIV, and his challenge is to encourage domestic manufacture and to reform the French economy, which is still freighted down by manorialism and feudalism and tax farmers who are making large economic rents at the expense of the crown. And his program of reform is very much top-down. And it's a program of reform that is has components of it that we would associate with industrial policy or state aid today, protecting domestic manufacturers, nurturing domestic manufacturers, taking strategic decisions about monopolies. And, and he patents. was allowed to do this unimpeded, was he? He was allowed to do this unimpeded. And I think what's interesting in terms of the uh, connections with mercantilism is that his chancellor, Segur, commissioned the Code Savary. Um, Jacques Savary was a very successful merchant. He also asked Savary to produce a manual called The Perfect Merchant that gave instructions for the conduct of both domestic and overseas trade. And this was something that merchants were expected to read and internalize that disciplined the French merchants to this new world in which they were competing with the Spanish and, 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 and the British for the Americas, um, as well as within Europe. And that top-down approach um, is, is the chief feature of French mercantilism or Colbertism and certainly has echoes by the 18th century in the Camelot writings in Germany. Yes. Craig, let's, the wars of religion, uh, were yes. very, how did they affect what was going on? They engulfed Europe in the mm -hmm. 17th century. Yeah. yeah, well, I've already referred to the Spanish, so I won't do that, but all in the 17th century, it flows nicely from our discussion of France, although we... <laughs> bring it back home again, because it was specifically after um, Louis XIV invaded the, the Dutch provinces and then England was brought into the, the war with the Glorious Revolution and William coming over, that England really started enacting in Parliament a lot of what we would call classic mercantilist protectionist measures, and especially focusing on wool. So... The cloth industry, the woolen cloth industry, is by far England's largest export industry, largest home industry. So how did this affect mercantilism? These um, well, they wars? wanted to keep the wool in England, so they made it illegal to export any raw wool or certainly spun yarn to France. So it all had to be done it's with... successful? Relatively. I mean, there's always quite a bit of smuggling, um, and the French have sources of their own wool, but the Europeans thought the English wool was, was the best. But Yes, they do spend quite a bit on policing the coastline to try to Did that give mercantilism a bit of a jolt? I guess so, yeah. I think in general, I mean, certainly not everyone supports this because the woolen interest is you know, not as powerful as the East India Company, but it's pretty powerful. And there are merchants that would want to engage in what they call free trade. We haven't talked about free trade, but free trade in England is a really big intellectual concept. It doesn't mean free trade the way Adam Smith thought of it. It means free trade amongst English merchants, so against monopolies like the East India Company and against the woolen interest. But overall, I think nationally it was thought to be a good thing because the woolen interest is very clever in arguing that it supports <coughs> employment. 
There are perhaps as many as one and a half million women and children employed by the mid-18th century in the woolen cloth industry. Um, they say, you know, we need to protect the, the jobs of those people who are supporting yeah. our poor families in England. Uh, Helen, <clears throat> let's turn to Italy. What contribution did they make to mercantilism? Well, the idea about the re-exports that we've mentioned with Munn, that came from an Italian thinker called Serra, and he was the person who influenced Munn. Munn was working in support of the East India Company, so he had to explain why it was necessary for bullion to leave the country. Why was that a good idea? Well, if you brought something back in that you could then sell on to a different country and they would send bullion to you, then a bit more complicated system, you'd actually be better off in the longer run. So you'd get more bullion after a couple more transactions, if you like. You know, are these maneuvers helping anybody? Are they helping the Italians or the British or the French? Well, they're helping whoever's the middleman. Well, who, and are, that the, would who, be, are, the, who are the main middleman in this? That would be the East India Company. So yeah. obviously Munn is writing in favour of that, but he's using an idea from the Italian thinker, Serra, who thought of it first. And also in terms of Italy, it's really not Italy as we would think of it as a modern country. It's more city-states that are often in competition with each other and often at war with each other. And particularly the issues about paying for large mercenary armies and and that sort of idea we can associate particularly with uh, Machiavelli and his ideas of really cutthroat competition between different city-states. That has an impact as well in this idea that you are you have to compete in this zero-sum game or you will be trampled down. And uh, Maris, can we now turn to Germany as we sweep across Europe uh, and, the, and their reaction to, and Prussia in particular, and their reaction to this? Okay, um, certainly. The Prussians are late um, arrivals to this to a degree, and the real challenge for the Prussian state in the late 17th and 18th century is one of state building. And... Um, Certainly Frederick the Great, but also his father, became interested in the science of public administration, as it were. And cameralism, which is the name that's given to this, is, is a body of thought in Germany, Saxony, and in Prussia, which divides public administration into public finance, public administration, and policymaking, and is a really technocratic, bureaucratic approach to understanding the economy and the relationship between the state and other stakeholders in the economy, and to incur with the aim of encouraging domestic manufacturers, encouraging domestic employment to the extent possible, um, and also creating um, a other locuses of economic power that could challenge landed elites and, as a consequence, help provoke land reform because Prussia is seen as very backward. But it's also something that is taken up by what we would loosely call enlightened absolutists or enlightened despots in Austria and elsewhere, um, including in the Austrian-Italian lands like Bukhari, who are very interested in state intervention and state monitoring and state involvement in the economy. And cameralism really is about that. It's not principally concerned with overseas trade, although it is talking about state aid in the form of protectionism, but it's talking about trying to understand and order the economy in such a way as, as to, to promote um, the growth of domestic manufacturing. And and do, do they yeah. apply it as a system in, in Prussia? And if so, is it successful? 
Well, it certainly it, it depends on your vantage point. Um, Prussia is is the huge success story of, of the 19th century, and yeah, you know, if you look at it from the standpoint of 1870, then yes, it's stunningly successful because the Prussians end up in control of the, of the German Empire. Um, but it is true that there is tension between cameralism as it develops, particularly after the Napoleonic Wars, and what the British perceive as economic orthodoxy by that point. So there are plenty of British envoys to Prussia who come back and say they obviously haven't read Adam Smith. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the, their economic policies are antiquated. They're you know, medieval. Um, so it came under attack. But but yes, within the German-speaking lands, that is the economic consensus. And you see it most fully expressed in the 19th century with someone like Friedrich List, who is, is seen as you know, a protection, somebody who's very concerned about industrial policy, innovation policy, and protectionism. So yes, it does remain the economic orthodoxy in German-speaking lands. So why are you saying that Prussia gained ascendancy in Germany because of mercantilism? No, I didn't say that, but no, I'm saying no, that. No, I, I, I'm just asking with you. I, yeah. I wasn't quite clear about it, that's no. all. What I'm saying is when you say it's stunningly successful, I was, I was saying it's a question of how you measure success, that what happened, it's, it's not so much do we measure the success of the Prussian economy in terms of its growth, but that if you think about the way state competition plays out in the 19th century and you think about nation building, the Prussians did win in the sense that ultimately the unification of Germany happened with Prussia at the helm. Now, there were political reasons for that, but the notion of, of the the famous Prussian bureaucracy, the Prussian state building, Prussian you know top-down um, control of the economy in the 19th century um, does have its antecedents in 18th century cameralism. Um, I don't think it's why Prussia ended up in the helm of Germany, but I do think that when you say, was it successful, it's a question of it looks very different in 1870 than it did in 1815 or 1848. But certainly there are those within Germany who would look to Friedrich List and say, you know, what happened with the, the customs union? It began a process of unifying Germany with Prussia in, in, at the helm. So, yes, there are people who would make that argument, even though I would not myself want to suggest for a moment that, that German unification was the result of cameralism. Yeah. Um, why did you remain successful for so long, Cantalism? Part of it is that it appeals to some sort of idea of common sense. So the general public can understand this. And this is going back to this fallacy of composition issue that, well, if I'm producing lots of goods and I'm not buying a lot in, that must be better. If I value the gold stores that I have in my house, clearly the state should have lots of gold. And you see that even now. But also, as we move on in time, and economics becomes its own discipline, it becomes taught at university... It uh, becomes more complicated and the ordinary... Why does it become more complicated? Well, because you start building models and then you start building using a lot of data and then you start using a lot of mathematics and it goes out of the basic common sense understanding of the average person. So it becomes a science or a social science more to, to the point that uh, somewhat becomes a little obscure to, to most people. But the sensible thing you said at the beginning doesn't apply. People don't understand why it doesn't apply anymore. I think some people do, but then they're vulnerable to campaigns like buy British, that would be better. So sometimes you've got to say, well, you've got to learn about Ricardian comparative advantage. Ricardo showed people how trade could be beneficial to both countries. And that idea of trading isn't necessarily a bad thing having an import that you actually use 
isn't a bad thing if you care about the welfare of the general public. What we've been talking about is the welfare of people in the elite, the king, the political leadership, the very wealthy merchant, and everything else has to be extracted for that small group's benefit, whether it's environmental damage, whether it's enslavement, whether it's the warfare that goes on with these trade wars. Whatever it is, it's not really borne by them. Maris, can you put your finger on why mercantilism declined when it did? I, I think there are many answers to that question. I think the one that I would tend to favor is, is actually in terms of the Atlantic Revolution. So the American, I am American, the American Revolution, but also the other revolutions in, in, in the Atlantic world, because that, that fundamentally changed the political reality. And, and certainly Adam Smith was worry. trying to argue, well, Adam Smith and, and Edmund Burke were opposed to um, slavery, certainly, and were actually on the side of the American colonists at the same time. And the reality is, is that, that was once, quite tricky, wasn't it? Well, it is quite tricky. It certainly would have been even trickier 20 or 30 years later. But at, at the time, there was that sense for Adam Smith that the best way to dismantle slavery is to argue that it's economically unviable and economically unhinged. And he was employing his critique of the mercant of mercantilists in part to argue that actually um, slavery is a flawed economic system and these overseas empires and their slaving economies are flawed economic you know, ideas and are based on flawed economic ideas and that what would be better is for all nations to trade on an equal basis with each other in a world of free trade. And I think after... Isn't that, isn't that sort of a buy in the sky? Well, it's, it, it is whether it actually ever happens that everybody trades on an equal basis happen. or ever will happen. It's very much baked into the World Trade Organization and the post-war consensus after the Second World War about how trade should be organized. So Adam Smith won the argument for a very long time. And my point is, is that what really killed off mercantilism is the fact that these overseas trading empires in their 17th and 18th century form collapsed with the Atlantic revolutions. And although the East India Company continued well into the 19th century, uh, as for that matter, did the South Sea Company, the focus of mercantilism around the organization triangular trade with the American colonies was a non-starter after that. And I think that, that Smith and Burke, in that sense, did win the argument. As Helen alluded to, mercantilism failed to describe the economic realities of the late 18th century in Britain with budding industrialization and the loss of overseas colonies and the reorganization of economic life in such a way that, that you were no longer thinking about this jealousy of trade and instead were thinking about um, Britain's industrial revolution being the engine of growth, hmm. not trade, but industrialization. Do you want to come in there, Helen? Yes, I think there's certainly something to be said for all of that, but also the growth of people power. So the idea of people being allowed to vote, and therefore you have to concern yourself with what we might call the utility value of trade or various products or working conditions. The economic life changes because the underlying political systems change as well. Does anything as it will replace mercantilism? Um, it slowly leaves the scene, does it, on left? Does, well, does anything come in stage right? Well, I mean, England in the 19th century has been termed the free trade nation, so it does become an ideology. Um, if so, it's a convenient ideology, because England rules the globe <laughs> in terms of trade, but it is an ideology that people believe in, and it does replace the old mercantilism. Um, now, it takes a big hit after the First World War, and then you get a period of nationalism where economies are sort of not autarkic but 
much more focused inwards, or the British focused on the empire. But um, but the, perhaps the most interesting phase is after the Second World War, the you know after Bretton Woods and the post-war consensus, where some economists like uh, John Kenneth Galbraith and others say there is a limited role for protectionism now. As DeMora said, most economists at this time really believe in free trade, but they say with developing emerging nations, they perhaps need a bit of protection to help them kickstart their industries. Um, but for various reasons in the 70s, you know, that is stagnating and not working that well. And then free trade really takes over. But again, you know, look at how long the easy and how many rules it takes to create what you want to call free trade. It's it's a very rule-based type of free trade. It's not quite what Adam Smith had in mind. So we still think of that. And again, it goes back to Helen's point about democracy, because politicians have to think about what the newspapers are writing and buy British or, you know, uh, against European regulations. We're very familiar with <laughs> that kind of discourse recently. And it is an idealized system. And we certainly have a lot more free trade now than we did 30 years ago because of things like NAFTA and European Union. But it's still a very difficult thing because we live in national political systems. People pay much more attention to the people we vote for in Parliament than perhaps you know, the people negotiating free trade deals. Is mercantilism wiped out altogether then? It's difficult to deal with mercantilism as a state nation-state ideology when you have multinational companies that are so very powerful. And that's part of this very complicated supply chains that mean that you are bringing together workers and products in different countries to form the final product. Yes. The political rhetoric often ignores that, doesn't it? Well, yes. <laughs> well, thank you all very much. Thank you, Helen Paul, Damaris Kaufman, and Craig Muldrew, and to our studio engineer, Andrew Garrett. Next week, Solon the Lawgiver, the father of ancient Athenian democracy, they say. Thanks for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. What did you think we missed out? And what did you not say you would like to have said? Over to you, Helen, to start with. Um, why is this all about Europe? Why are these European writers? And basically, Europe is a lot of small states that are at war with each other and competition with each other relative to, say, a country the size of China that's massive and doesn't need to worry so much about these these ideas of trading games. So that's why, as well, it's very Eurocentric historiography um, that leads into, and, and as Damaris is saying, of course, Smith's great torch shone down on mercantilism. It's all writers he would have been aware of coming out of the European tradition. I think it, it really links, again, what Helen was saying about this competing states in Europe and merchants being so important in trading between states, whereas in a huge empire like China, you know, the trading is within the state. I mean, there is trade into the um, China, uh, into the Sea of China and into the Indian Ocean as well. Um, and there is a very strong Chinese um, Confucian tradition, a bit more like Cameralism, and I don't think I would want to call it merch 
mercantilism because the merchants in China are always sort of kept on a leash a bit by the government to create social harmonies, to not have a powerful interest group in the state. Um, but certainly there's you know, an awful lot of trade in the empire and it's a very prosperous area. Um, and the state takes a big role in the well-being of the citizens through the um, national grain trade, you know, build the great canals and their state granaries all over the place to try to move grain and rice around the kingdom in case of any bad harvests. So we do have a very strong sense of the state looking after the um, well-being of the people. And as I said, that was a part of quite a few European mercantilist writers, but they couch it very much in terms of let's create employment for a market-based solution, whereas the Chinese one is more... Um, based on keeping local harmony rather than... It's a non-Smithian solution, so we think, yeah. <laughs> the Chinese aren't that interested in importing a lot of goods, mm. not because they have some kind of theory about them, because they just don't particularly want them. <laughs> That's They've got all these great things like porcelain and silk that other people really want, and they don't want English woolens or what have you in return. So there's that kind of underpinning of telling people, don't buy this good, mm. It's not really necessary if they don't want it in the first instance. And I think the other interesting thing about China is that they, it, it's certainly the case that there are many writers that we might roughly describe as mercantilists or at least friends of people we would describe as mercantilists who are interested in, it, in the East for its exoticism and would talk about the exotic goods you could obtain from the East. But actually the, the French physiocrats, so Adam Smith's interlocutors in France, um, Francois Kenny and Turgot, were interested in China for a different reason. They were more in keeping with a kind of a cameralist mentality. They were interested in China for its administration. And Kenny wrote a, a treaty, um, which we would roughly translate as the enlightened despotism of the Chinese, although they didn't mean despotism in a particularly bad sense. They were proud of themselves as being enlightened despots as well. Mm -hmm. But that sense that the, that the Chinese case was interesting because the Chinese had cracked public administration and that they were very good at ordering their empire with this aim towards balance. Now, he did have critiques of it, but he was interested in reflecting on China for that reason. He wasn't particularly interested in its trading policies, but rather the organization of, of, the, of, the, of the Chinese empire as a whole. Um, so there were thoughtful reflections on um, Asiatic empires. There were also more exoticized, what we would call Orientalist reflections as well on Asiatic empires. But there was certainly a sense on the part of mercantilists that they were trading with these people to bring exotic luxuries to um, the metropole. And I, I think that that's not really what um, Smith's allies elsewhere or interlocutors elsewhere were interested in. They were interested in a more comparative account, almost in a sociological sense. I'm quite interested in how he sort of caught on. Um, not all of a sudden, but quite soon, an awful lot of um, companies in England and European countries also taking on the same ideological notion about how to do business, how to do trade, why this is the obtaining thing, almost like a religion, really. I'm not going to push that or press it. But it is, it, I just find it intriguing. Why did all, after a few decades, why was everybody a mercantilist? I think it's because they're all connected by trade. Um, it just shows the importance of 
trade within the European system by you know, the late 16th and 17th century. So I mentioned, you know, the English woolen trade. So since you know, Roman times, English wool has been exported to the continent, and in the medieval period, you know, the cloth centers of Florence and um, Flanders, the lowlands, were importing a lot of English wool and then turning it into wonderfully colorful cloth. And, you know, the English sort of mercantilists pick up on this, let's control this wool trade and give us a big advantage. But what they never mention is, of course, you need underwear if you're going to wear woolen clothes, and that's linen, right? <laughs> and linen is coming from Europe, um, mostly from Silesia and um, northern Europe. But there is a sort of reciprocal trade, very much in the spirit of Ricardo, you know, they can produce linen, we produce wool. So, <laughs> but they don't think of it that way. Um, and if you look at the trade statistics, so uh, you can see quite clearly that, you know, there is a, 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 a reciprocal, not quite a, you know, it's not a balance, but it is quite large trade going both ways. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with everything Craig said, but I think that there is actually something baked into the discourse of mercantilism mm -hmm. that explains why it caught on. Because, and a book that made it quite an impression on me when it was written, Taming Capitalism Before Its Triumph, um, mm -hmm. by Koji oh, yeah, Yamato, yeah. um, who's in, in Tokyo, a British-trained um, economic historian who works in Japan. Um, this argument that all of these people who were mercantilist writers and many other more besides were essentially projectors. They were proposing mm -hmm. um, concepts to the crown in exchange. You know, they hope to win monopolies or they hope to win patents or they hope to win privileges of various trading privileges of various descriptions and everybody was trying to convince the the, the, the crown or the king or his ministers to grant them something and it, these were all couched in terms of the um, best interest of this group of merchants was kind of synonymous with the best interest of the kingdom as a whole. And there was an echo That's chamber the trick, of this. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is a great trick. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it was an echo chamber as well, because everybody couched their ideas this way yeah, and they recycled right. a lot mm -hmm. of the same arguments. And as a consequence it became a dominant discourse almost in a Gramscian sense, because mm -hmm. everybody used it. And that, yeah. you know, is, is one answer for why it became yeah. so heavily accepted. I suppose another thing is when you look at the luxuries that you can get from the Dutch East India Company and people wanted that. That's part of it is that you, you this is an elite and the elite like luxuries. That's why they're going to pick up on mercantilist doctrines that say, you know, we can bring in East India luxuries to you. It isn't for the general public. It's not like a generalized discussion uh, with a an electorate the way we have today where we have everyone has a vote. No, it's just often about the luxury trade and wealth for the top people. Although the same people today who are concerned about the loss of industrial jobs don't want to pay £4,000 for an iPhone. So <laughs> the, yeah, the irony is that, 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 that the attitudes that, that made people self-interested about consumption at the elite level also do trickle down. But the consumption question, being pro-consumption, is, is part of this. And I think that mm -hmm. that's right, that um, yes. it provides a justification for... Um, that's where the East India yeah. I think that's really interesting. So nothing has replaced mercantilism in the way that mercantilism operated? No, I mean, as I think Craig alludes to, there are the, the exceptions that prove the rule. There are, you know, the, the people like... Um, uh, Galbraith and his support of import substitution or various heterodox economists today who attack elements of, of, of the Washington consensus and, and um, 
argued that there's a place for industrial policy and for state aid. And you even see that in, in Britain in, in the discourses that are arising post-Brexit, that this gives Britain the opportunity to, to reintroduce state aid or reintroduce industrial policy. But this is very much um, – these are ideas that are somewhat marginal to the overall consensus that the trading regime that developed in the post-Second World War period of the World Trade Organization is something that it underpins globalization and is desirable. There is a big tension between, you know, populism, yeah. if you want to call it that, and reality, because the reality is, you know, exactly what Helen said. And, you know, we've read a lot about the trade wars that Trump started with China, and yet U.S. trade with China has continued to increase every year after that. It hasn't had any effect apart yeah. from political rhetoric. Yeah. Well, I think two things. One is that I, I would agree, and I think that these great Aristotle trading companies of the 18th century, the East India mm -hmm. Company, um, the um, South Sea Company had the, the might of the British Empire behind them, whereas now the large multinational corporations don't really require militaries behind them. They, they benefit from the architecture of, of global capitalism. But I'm actually quite struck by that trilemma that Danny Roderick um, pos posited of this notion that you can have any one of the any two of the following three, which is free elections, national sovereignty, or free trade. You can have free elections and free trade. You can have national sovereignty and free elections, and you can have national sovereignty and free trade. But you can't have all three. Why not? And the tension, well, because of, of precisely the, the people power that Helen alludes to, or, or the internal contradictions of this, that free trade does curtail national economic sovereignty by telling you that you can't erect barriers like or and you can't pursue certain policies likewise um free movement of labor and capital um may be desirable in economic terms but to the extent that people feel threatened by interest groups feel threatened within a national economy as we see with the immigration debate today then the electoral calculus makes that impossible likewise you could have free trade and free elections without national sovereignty, but nobody seems very keen to have that at the moment. If anything, nation states have reasserted themselves in the 21st century with a vengeance. Um, and, and economic security and economic warfare have made a comeback in the last um, 10 years. I think the question post-financial crisis, I think the question, though, is that are these doctrines neo-mercantilist in any meaningful sense? I mean, is it possible to say that industrial policy, um, state aid, subsidies, is similar somehow to the East India Company's attempts to protect its own monopoly or um, someone's attempts to obtain a patent because there are some conceptual similarities, but they're very attenuated. And I, I do think that critics of the uh, of globalization, and I'm not a particularly strong one, but critics of globalization would do well to find other arguments than reviving the mercantilists in, in, in the 17th century. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's the point. Um, so... I think almost most economists would agree that globalization has led to a accelerating growth in global wealth and certainly wealth outside what used to be called um, uh, first first nations or no, no <laughs> that's the wrong term um, first world countries yeah um, in the rest of the world you know if you look at a lot of different statistics like life expectancy child mortality massive increases in countries that used to be called third world, but we, we not you know, can't even use that term anymore. There, there's much of an equality going on. Um, but the sort of populist wave that led to Trump and probably Brexit is one of formerly secure industrial jobs 
um, being eroded and you know, a lot of talk about inequality and these people are then looking to the nation state to try to address that inequality and you know in part blaming globalization free movement of capital as a um, cause of the inequality which I think it is in a lot of ways. So um, it's a sort of ironic situation where we definitely have an increase in wealth, but the way the wealth is increasing um, very rapidly as well has led to these political attentions within the nation states, and the nation states have not been very good, as Demars alluded to, mostly because of the financial crisis. Uh, before that, everyone thought it was, it was going swimmingly. Um, actually addressing this problem and dealing with these sort of lost, or not lost jobs, because we have a lot of employment, but lost income, I guess you would call it. I would think that critiques of the global economic order going forward might pick up something that's actually present in physiocracy, which is that the notion of natural limits to growth in terms of the physical world and the physical environment, and that actually it's from environmental economics that you'll get meaningful critiques of free trade and globalization in terms of climate change, the climate emergency, and natural limits to growth um, than you would from mercantilist doctrines, which are about the jealousies of trade and which were fundamentally extractive in their sense of the natural environment, extracting silver and, and other raw materials. So I think the future will be different from the past in that respect. Here yeah. comes here oh. comes the producer. Here oh, comes right. <laughs> Telling us to stop. Anyone like a cup of tea? Oh, yes, please. <laughs> BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. I'm Paris Lees. Welcome to The Flip Side from BBC Radio 4. In each episode... I'll tell two stories from opposite sides of the coin and use science to ask questions about elements of the human experience that we sometimes take for granted. Turns out that this person that I sublet my apartment to, he was, you know, a scammer. I feel like now I am the person that I was when I was on the internet at 13. It's lies and it's covered with lipstick and glitter. Subscribe to The Flip Side with me, Paris Lees, on BBC Sounds. So crispy can chicken. Jetzt nur bei McDonald's. Der McCrispy Homestyle mit extra crispy chicken. Und neu McCrispy Homestyle Spicy Guacamole. Nur für kurze Zeit. In allen teilnehmenden Restaurants, nicht zu unseren Frühstückszeiten.